G'day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the Fight for Success podcast. Today, I'm joined by a very good friend of mine, Adam Rice. Adam, welcome to the show, mate. Hey, thanks for having me. So good to be here. No dramas, mates. So, mate, where, where, are you, where are you coming in from? It looks like a damn good view behind you. It's pretty good, eh? It's bloody, it's not so cold today, but I'm from, uh, I'm in Melbourne, Australia. We've, uh, I moved back home about, about from the Gold Coast probably about six months ago. And uh, yeah, I'm just in St Kilda and that view overlooks Albert Park all the way into the city, unobstructed view. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty glorious to wake up to actually, yeah. Albert Park, so can you see the Formula One from? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, it was a party at home during the Grand Prix. We just like bought a set of binoculars and hung out and put it on the television and watched the race. And you find like little nooks and corners. Like there's the main through there's like where the main starting line is. And there's a there's a big turn just over here. And yeah, there was helicopters flying around for days. Like it was epic. Mate, I'm gonna have to hit you up uh, early next year. We'll uh, we'll do Formula One. <laughs> oh yeah, Formula One and rolls. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> Mates, um, just for a quick 30 seconds for the uh, audience, who's Adam? Uh, Adam. So I'm Adam Rice. I'm a middle child of four kids all a year apart, uh, all Catholic names of all things. I was born in uh, the Mansfield Hospital and uh, grew up, funnily enough, on, uh, on Timbertop Grammar. My, my mother and father met as the matron and the, uh, the housemaster and had five kids. And so I grew up on campus at, uh, at Timbertop Grammar and then we moved to Geelong Grammar and then, yeah, moved to Mansfield and the country and then Mornington Peninsula. Been, uh, lived, grown up in plenty of amazing places. Awesome, mate. Awesome. And, uh, mate, what do, you, what, what do you do for, what's your business? Uh, so I'm a culinary mentor and chef. And what we do is we help the community to understand food and dietary limitations so that they can plan, prepare and cook um, food that has wow that coexists with their family's eating habits and suits dietary uh, limitations and so everything yeah coexists with their family's eating habits so go to your health practitioner and get the what and we do the how sorry my dogs have decided to have a fight underneath the desk here um but mate that's a that, that's a pretty interesting niche like the do you find that um like families are being affected by um different um, you know, dietary requirements more now than ever before? Like, yeah, very much so. Like it's, it's become quite a problem within, within the home environment and also within businesses where now one in five um, Australians are gluten-free uh, or, or low FODMAP. So, so uh, wheat, celiac, um, uh, gluten intolerances and sensitivities. And then also our IBS and low FODMAP is a, is a huge one as well. One in five as well. I believe that low FODMAP has actually just surpassed the um, national rating for over gluten. So, so what, yeah. what, what, what is it like? Why, why, why has this started to happen more and more? Is it just the foods that we were eating or were people just sick and didn't know why they were sick? Like what, what, what's well, actually made it happen? Of, there's a couple of suggestions around and, and I'm not the scientist or the health practitioner. So, um, yep. you know, it's sort of a bit of a guessing game, but the suggestion that as we um, grew up and we exposed to a lot of antibiotics as kids that mm. compromised our gut flora, um, Growing up, and then as we have kids, then the DNA is and the um, order of the, the immune um, response system is compromised, and so there's there's possibility that it's exposure to antibiotics, also exposure to chemicals, um, also mass-produced food, uh, so like you know GMOs and and hybrid seeds and and um, and you know hybrid grains and wheat and stuff like that, and so. Like it sort of really started around about the industrial revolution. So when when there was food production, when your parents and my parents were 
um, and grandparents were making food. It was created locally and mm. it was um, food was yeah grown locally, fed locally, shared locally. And then as we got busier, um, we had to find ways to produce more food quicker. That's more convenient. And so science was manipulated with um, raw products in order to get more yield out of wheat and gluten and, um, you know, GMOs with corn, bean, corn and soybean and all that sort of stuff. And we kind of mess with food over and over again which took it away from its most natural state. And so um, there's people that are gluten intolerant in Australia, but they go to Italy and they can eat all the pasta in the world. It's a really interesting space. That's uh, it's pretty, pretty interesting, but also pretty scary at the same yeah, time. Yeah, it like, really <laughs> is. It really is. I actually went and studied um, ag business and, and logistics. I've, I've got a background in logistics and supply chain in a sub-study in ag business. And I went and studied food and production in america and it's a scary place wow okay so mate, what what is it how, like how did you get into this field what's your what's your background uh so i am a chef by trade um and i've worked in um i worked more as a personal chef in most recent years but i've trained in some sort of pretty well-known restaurants around melbourne um, and australia Ezard, which was a two-hat restaurant uh, i worked for cara martini under Dylan Roberts, the ex, um, one of the ex-head chefs at Ezard, uh, Chef Dallas Riley, who's from Montalto, and spent a lot of time in the higher end of the industry, QT Hotel under um, Andrew Harmer, and then ventured and became a personal chef for a long time, worked on boats, worked in private clients' homes and, you know, private events and that sort of thing. Um, and I was working in a restaurant called Ezard in uh, 2006 or something like that, and a customer come into the restaurant that was lactose intolerant, gluten-free, low FODMAP and a vegetarian. And we had to make nine courses for them on the fly. Yeah, hectic in the middle of a busy <laughs> service. In the middle of a busy service, like quarter past six, the waitress comes up and says, hey, can we do this? And we're like, fuck, yeah, of course we can, of course. And the light bulb came on. I was like, what did we do? Like, how did we just do that? How was it that chefs were able to take a, a set of ingredients that someone can't have and still formulate it into something that's, you know, a two hat level that tastes amazing, that's well balanced, that um, that's epic. And so I then spent about four years kind of like thinking about what this thing is that we do, you know, like mm. it really didn't have, and I didn't really have a reference for what it was. Um, I knew that it was concepts of cookery and culinary theory, but how does that all kind of, how, how do I coach that? If someone has no idea, how do you coach this process? And so I spent sort of five years like unpacking it, trying new models, trying with new coaches, learn how to become an NLP um, practitioner and trainer um, and joined a bunch of like coaching programs. And yeah, just kept like thinking about it and ideas like, you know, one idea for we have in our cookbook, um, which is the sensory impact model, which shows you how to create great food on the fly mm. by understanding the concepts of taste and flavor. So sweet, salt, sour, bitter, umami, herbs, fats, aromas, spices, and, the, and, and those sorts of things. And you put them all together and you can make anything taste epic. Yeah, right. And so that's one of our modules. And so, yeah, I just spent like years just unpacking it and unpacking it and then, you know, tried a bunch of times to get it to market and failed and finally got it there. But yeah, it's been, a, it's been quite the journey in, in trying to figure out what this thing is called food, you know, which I'm most passionate about and trying to educate people around how to do it better, I guess. Yeah, no, I love that. Now, you're a better man than me. I remember when I was working in a in a pub in London. Uh, in London, there was um, this lady that came up to me and said, "Hey, what's the uh, what's the vegan options?" And I just said, "Drinking and dancing." 
So ah, yeah, you are, yeah, you're definitely a better solution than me for 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 that problem that the uh, client had. So well then, well then, yeah. Looking at businesses, that's where it also becomes quite a large problem because there's because of a lack of information, I guess, um, and knowledge and know how. Restaurants really struggle to do low fodmap food, fully mm. gluten free food. There's also the huge problem of cross contact where you know the the gluten free bread goes into the toaster, mm. gets crumbs on it, person eats it. You know things aren't washed properly people using um, nut spoons in milk spoons. And there's a huge like risk with cross contact. And so um, one thing for me, and personally, I got sick of seeing all my friends go to these restaurants and get like food poisoning and, and become quite unwell because of the irresponsibility of the chef, you know, in the mm. menu. So, you know, I created a, a, a course. I've, we've written a program. It's not quite ready for market yet, but we've written a program to help educate chefs how to, Manage, manage dietaries, understand communication, do custom dish design, make them feel special. You know, people with dietaries, they feel quite alienated. There's a lot of food fear. A, they yeah. feel sick and B, they go out and get sick, you know? So. Yeah. Well, I mean, if it's, if it's become a problem because of, you know, the way we've been tampering foods over, over time and also the, you know, use of any antibiotics and things like that, is it, wouldn't you say that it's probably going to get worse, even, even worse in the future? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a real worry. Um, you know, the numbers keep going up. More, more and more kids in early learning and childcare centres are having, you know, nut allergies and dairy allergies and, and, and multitudes of different things on different things, you know. So, you know, peanuts, dairy, uh, you know, shellfish and soybean, you know, this one individual can, and they, and they can be quite unwell, you know. Obviously, the end risk is anaphylaxis and people dying, which has happened before. You know, there was an instance in McRae on the Mornington Peninsula a few years ago, the husband and wife, elderly couple, ordered the same salad and the wife said no dairy and there was a mix-up at the pass and she ate the dairy and um, and tragically passed in the restaurant. Wow, okay. Yeah, and it happens quite a lot. It happened in a catering in a, in a catering environment at a wedding. You know, kids said, the, the mum said to the waitress, no dairy. Waitress gave the, the young guy an ice cream, had an, had an anaphylactic reaction, ended up in hospital. Happens more times than, yeah, than I like to talk about. You know, it's quite a big problem. Wow. Like, how, do, how does the restaurant, like, if, if, the, um, if it's going to get worse and worse and worse, how, how can restaurants in the future even be prepared for that? Because if, if people, there's going to be more and more people with um, food allergies and, you know, someone could have four different allergies like the um, person you guys have to deal with. Um, how, how are restaurants even going to prepare for this in the future? Well, it just, um, we, there's a couple of models that we teach at BFB about how you can do custom dish design and using the sensory impact model with our food list as well to show you how to like, you know, quite quickly create amazing dishes on the fly for customers that do come in last minute. But yep. the solution really comes in education and understanding um, and, and pre-planning. And so for a venue, you know, um, allergies themselves are reasonably easy to identify, you know, shellfish, peanuts, wheat, you can read labels, it's relatively easy to find, but the real sticky spot is in intolerances, being, um, you know, low FODMAP, candida, nightshades, and these sorts of things. Um, but the only way to really do it is to get clear and pre-plan early. And so creating your menus that have got recipes that have been approved with dry store goods that have been approved with, um, you know, so with when someone comes says, hey, I'm gluten-free, what can I have? It's already automated and already everyone knows what to do because you have done planning, we've done training, we've done testing, we've done feedback, you know? And so it's not mm. something you can do on the fly. Like 
managing dietaries in restaurants on the fly is very, very troublesome. You know, it's stressful. It's overwhelming when you're short staffed, easy to make mistakes. So it's been like a lot of the venues that I work with now that do this job successfully, even if we haven't trained them, um, you know, they, they bought, they pulled their team together and said, right, what's gluten, you know, what shellfish, how do we read labels? How do we do cross contact? How do we do cross contamination? What are the dishes we can create and have in the freezer or have on hand or have on our menu? So when this happens, it just happens seamlessly. And that's the aim of the exercise, but ultimately like reducing the risk for the diner as much as possible. So they can come in and feel welcomed and feel safe and feel like they're a guest in the venue again, you know? So I guess it could open up um, some opportunity for restaurants to kind of niche i guess like you you see um a lot more over like the last five years there's been a lot more vegan restaurants and um you know different types of restaurants that um meet people's food choices um vegetarian restaurants and things like that would is there a chance in there could be to start become restaurants for gluten intolerance or lactose intolerance or or yeah there's yeah good question there's definitely a few venues out there now that are um are gluten intolerant if you're gluten intolerant the whole venue's gluten-free yeah uh, it's a bit of a myth that uh that people think they can you can do it but mostly it has to be done with pre-purchased products if you have a gluten-free offer um and uh the rest of the it's an individual item on the menu whereas when you start preparing flour and bread and crumbs and those sorts of things you cross contaminate the whole venue so mm. the only way to do it is to get like pre-bought gluten-free tart cases and sauces and you know or do it in a separate area and stuff but yeah, so there's a bunch of gluten-free restaurants and stuff out there at the moment. FODMAP's really hard because it's a really complex dietary. There are six particular fermentable sugars that are in most fruits and vegetables. And uh, by order of cancellation, like most people can't eat almost 50% of a whole food diet if they're on low FODMAP, same as nightshades and stuff. And so there will be uh, venues, I think, in the future that will be just like, you know, low FODMAP or gluten-free or just plant-based just to remove that confusion and i think it will really benefit the community because as i said there's one in five now that are low fodmap and veg and gluten and sorry gluten free mm. but they don't go out to venues so it's really killing the trade being that these people have food fear about going out to these venues mm. and so I, I think you know it's a great time for evolution and strategizing to find ways to get these people back into the venues but make them feel safe and supported and most of all like safety is everything because we need to make sure that these these guests are eating food that's safe food that's suitable for them you know and labeling like you know there's a huge misconception at the moment where the venue thinks that if a customer comes in and i had this experience myself where i was eating plant-based and i ordered a a vegetarian thai green curry and i ate Mm. it and i could taste the shrimp paste Mm. and i went to the counter at the end and i said there was shrimp paste in that and they said uh no there wasn't i said go to the kitchen and please ask the chef if there was shrimp paste in that curry and she came out and said yes and I said that was a plant that was a vegetarian curry like if I had a shellfish allergy and she turned and said you know you're supposed to let us know I said well actually by law I'm not and if you put on your menu that something is gluten-free then by law you have to you have to the customer expects what is written on the menu you know and people think that there's a misconception where the the people with the dietaries come in and have to put their hand up and say well it's actually you know not true people that are severely ill do that out of their own precaution do you know what i mean yeah just letting you know you know, this, 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 I'm very unwell. Please make sure that everything's clean, you know. But in the US, it, you know, the US is, is a real problem. They've got some really great venues that are doing it well, same as in the UK. 
and they've got some venues that are not doing it so well. I actually read an article in the broadsheet, I think it was last week, that said that, you know, venues in Australia, people are coming in for gluten-free food and they're getting glutinous poisoning. Like it's, it happens a lot. Wow. Yeah. I guess it's not just an education thing for the restaurants as well, but like also an education thing for the people that are struggling with these things to give them some sort of confidence to start going back out to restaurants, right? Like, um, like ultimately, if, if education's on both sides, the whole industry is going to um, blow up, I'd say 20%. Um, yeah. So yeah, how do you, how do you educate the, like once, once the restaurants are up to speed and ready to, ready to take on these people a lot more, how do you then educate the people who actually struggle with these dietary issues to have the confidence to um, come back out to the restaurants? Yeah, great question. And uh, so I think, you know, we, we sort of foresee some kind of a, uh, I guess, accreditation process with training so that if someone would like to host it, it may not be the BFB logo, for example, or it might be, you know, a, a low FODMAP logo, or it might be a particular thing. There'll be a sequence of, you know, training and recipes and that sort of thing so that a venue will be able to advertise on their menu that they've gone through a particular training. This is something that we're working on at the moment. And these sort of things already exist with, um, you know, Celiac Australia and stuff like that. Um, not so much in the restaurant trade, but yeah, I, I eventually see that there'll be have to be some kind of identification, accreditation modality that goes into venues down the future. Probably won't happen for the next five years, but yeah, there, you know, I think there's a real opportunity to create dietary specific meals for people in a venue, um, which they can come to. Because as I said, one in five, it's not something that I'm looking to do, but I wouldn't open a low FODMAP restaurant, but you know, low FODMAP cafes and low FODMAP catering and low FODMAP mm. these things, like amazing opportunity because for the people that have low FODMAP, they'll, they'll know it because you can't, you wouldn't advertise low FODMAP and just wing it. You know, it's very particular and very specific. Same as gluten-free, you know, people that are serving gluten-free catering, they know that, you know, they're not, they wouldn't be making bread and doing gluten-free bread. You know, there's a lot of, yeah, things. But so I think, you know, training will evolve. Um, and the space will evolve. The challenge at the moment, the reason why I sort of created the program I did is because I just found that dietary and food allergy training was sitting at the back of um, training providers' offers. Mm. So you can get it, but it's not at the front and it's like a two-hour course, you know what I mean? Or it's like a six-hour module. And what we want to do is, is, you know, talk to people about it and create resources for them and just continue to give the community, um, the home, the the people at home, you know, I it's a bit contradictory, but teach people that have got dietaries how to cook great food at home. So they don't need to um, necessarily worry about going out all the time. Like the food yeah. will show you how to create a BFB is just as good, even not better than any venue you'll get out. Yeah. And then also teaching venues how to create great food, but also understand their marketing to say, Hey, you know, this is what we do. And there's, as I said, there's plenty of venues now that do it well. There's a low, there's a gluten-free um, Facebook group and they've got hundreds of, you know, gluten-free restaurants you can eat at. And I think the same is low FODMAP. And then, you know, there's a lot of venues that are doing good because there are a lot of like care, caring, you know, um, hospitality operators out there that, you know, want these people in. And so they are unpacking and discovering the ways to help people, invite people that have got dietaries in. But um, the, the real problem is, is this hiccups and cross-contact and, yeah, it was gluten-free and dairy-free, but there was a mix-up in the kitchen or there was a mix-up in the comms and someone gets ends up unwell. So, you know, that's what we're sort of driven to do here at BFB is like really, you know, shed light in this grey area and, you know, and, and get people eating great food again, yeah. 
Yeah, awesome. Mate, I could see this being like this huge opportunity I can see in in the future with this type of business. Uh, But you mentioned you've been like kind of getting, you know, to where where you are right now for probably the last seven years. What's been some of the biggest struggles, I guess, to get from where you you, you had the idea to start this kind of thing um, to get to where you are now? Yeah, um, thanks for asking. So, I guess like I was a chef that decided to become a coach, you know, yeah. Um, and I had no idea about marketing. I had no idea about coaching. I had no idea about selling. I had no idea about copy or anything. And, um, you know, I started off with a landing page that a friend wrote me and it was like, okay, we're up. And I just like crickets, <laughs> crickets, you know, just checking your I, bank account, bank account, <laughs> right. Just donuts. And then like, I'm at home, like working my butt off going, yeah, you just keep working and eventually it'll happen. And I'm like developing program after program after program. And the phone just wasn't ringing. So then I went to a, another marketing company um, who remained nameless that took about eight grand of my money and then nine months worth of back and forth and fluffing around. And in the end, we sent them a cease and desist. They didn't even get my product to market. You know, there's a few variables that I admit that I did, but, you know, sometimes I think we get caught in, um, we get caught in the pretty thing with, Mm. with some marketers and coaches and sales guys. And they're like, yeah, we'll do all this stuff. And then they either can't do it or they do a part of it and then want to charge you $2,000 a month for maintenance, you know? Yep. And so then I, um, so at that time the brand was Alishef. And uh, then I uh, joined Taki Moore's Million Dollar Coach Program. Yep. And, yep. Um, awesome. Yeah, and that was epic. Like Taki like really showed me the structure about attract, convert, deliver, taught me how to like unpack my IP and create the coaching modality and, you know, all these amazing things. But, you know, in the marketing I had gone to another like big marketing company that built me this, you know, big fancy new website, new brand, new colors. I actually rebranded from Alishef to Better Food Bureau in that space because there was confusion about my B2B, my B2C, my marketing and stuff yep. coming out of the one brand. So we decided to split it. But then in the end, I've, I've actually put it back together and, you know, the marketing's the same. But, you know, I went to a big fancy marketer and spent about eight grand, seven grand for a website and then they wanted to charge me two thousand dollars for maintenance and so the whole thing flopped and then i joined taki and um reached out to a a marketing consultant who's now a close friend of mine and she helped me write all these things that i'd created these like big fancy frameworks and names and you know the one day dietary fix and reboot culinary reboot and it was just like still wasn't selling and then i I joined ryan bowles profitable group academy i am and um, in the first like month with him, I'd moved on from Taki. I'm like, mate, why isn't this? I said to Ryan, I'm like, mate, this stuff ain't selling. He's just, I said, I'm posting and no one's reaching out. Barely anyone's liking my comments. I'm like, this has cost me like probably about 70 grand at this point in about five years of development. And then so uh, I worked with uh, Chris Benetti. Do you know Chris Benetti? Oh, yep, yep, yep. Yeah, Chris Benetti and Ryan and, um, and a couple of other marketing guys. I went to them and I'm like, I need help, like, what am I doing? Like I'm doing something wrong. Cause at that point it was me driving the boat, you know, mm. me doing the learning and then implementing. And so they basically said your niche can't identify themselves in your marketing. Your marketing is too transactional, not transformational. People are coming to your website and they're already sick and scared. And all of your stuff is way too intense. It's way mm. too scary. And so at that point it was like, do I reinvest do I pull the pin? Oh, Cause I was over it at this point, like seven years, no sales and about 70 grand in, I was like well and truly over it. And it was like, do I pull the pin and lose any, lose, lose any chance of recovering any of the funds that I put into it? 
um, or do I reinvest and try and save it? And I went back to um, Prue, my marketing consultant, um, and I said, you know, strip it right back, everything. You know, pull all of our simple cooking classes, simple coaching classes, simple workshops, like anything that feels too complicated, like we change it. And then so I, you know, put another seven grand and rebuilt it. And then when I put my offer out in the first week, I made five grand in sales. Oh, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, smashed it, smashed it. But yeah, what a journey, you know, like just constantly trying. And this is the, you know, this little bit coaches that coaches and startups have, especially people that didn't train to be business coaches or finance coaches or whatever. If you've got a background in business or a background in mechanics or a background in sales, you can probably figure out some kind of a coaching modality of how to deliver your copy, you know, your content. Mm. But for me, like I had no guide. I had no, no one's doing what I'm doing. I was in a new niche, trying new things. And yeah, it just kept showing up. And like, now it's been amazing. You know, now I do my marketing and people actually like, you know, respond to my nine word email and they're like, oh, you're doing <laughs> a challenge. Sick, I'll come. And like the other day I sent a $47 you know, login invoice and she paid it straight away and it was just amazing, you know? Yeah. No, that's awesome. And it's, it's a big thing when you go from being like the technician, um, you know, being being the chef or whatever else, um, and then trying to then start the business, right? There's so much more to it when you do get into the business side of things oh, um, so that people just don't realize about. Yeah. It's why so many moving pieces. And, and if there's a, if there's a, like in a funnel, if there's a, if there's a, missing link in a funnel your whole funnel doesn't work and you mm. could run it for months and then realize and then not even realize why people aren't connecting until you go uh damn i've got spelling errors all through there or my <laughs> messaging isn't right or whatever it is you know yeah no that's it so mate i guess you, you've gone through a bit of a, a cash cash eating monster kind of phase of you know burning through cash what, what, what could you, um, how, how could, what, what's some of the biggest learnings you've had um, through that process and what would you have done differently if you knew what you knew now and you could yeah. go back seven years ago? Mm, definitely. Uh, I, I joined, I joined the Aureus finance um, challenge and mm. I knew that the business was costing me about 10 grand a year, you know, 10 to 15 grand a year. And it could have gone into a car or it could have gone, you know, it could have gone into a bunch of different things, but um I was also drinking and not drinking heavily, but like I love eating out, you know, I love mm, restaurants yeah. and I love going out for lunches and I love like, you know, entertaining and stuff. And so I did the challenge with you guys and I realized like that I was gushing money, you know, when I did that 30 year projection, it was like the, one of the biggest wake up calls I'd had since I sort of started deciding I was going into business. I was like, I've got big holes that I need to fix. And most of it was just because of the 70 or $80, you know, lunch out it was the 200 dollars dinner out with the boys and beers on the weekends it was the you know buying a 200 dollars jacket or whatever it is and i was like just gushing money and so i reined that in when i come home i came home i quit drinking about three months ago and instantly like saved you know two grand a month easily wow. you know? yeah yeah and what you can do with that two grand a month is just massive over a long period of time isn't it oh well, it's completely stabilized the operation of the business yeah you know? like i wasn't like i wasn't trying to earn 10 grand through cooking and then like back pay and forward pay as many contractors and, and staff as I could, you know, now it's like I've set it up. So it's a weekly ticks along weekly and I know what I've got to put in it. You know, I'm working towards saving for my safety net. And so my biz ops and stuff. So as you guys say, you know, if you take three months or nothing comes in for three months, can you still operate, you know? Mm. And so that was a really big lesson. Uh, the other thing I did was I went to Kerwin Ray's Nail It and Scale It uh, about three months ago. 
And uh, I got to stand in front of 400 people and pitch my thing, which was a real game changer because up until this point, it was just an idea in my head and between my friends and family, you know, and we talk about, you know, these great things, but I hadn't actually like dropped it, you know, sort of thing. And so that was epic to be able to, and I had like a queue of people coming up to me, you know, restaurant owners and sufferers and health practitioners and, you know, and mental health specialists and stuff saying, Hey, I can see how you can work with us. And for me, that was just amazing. It really gave me the sign that what I'm, that I'm on the right path. And, um, and it's worth continuing to show up. Mm. But then the other thing that happened in the workshop is when I was talking to Kerwin Ray, a bunch of people started yelling out, what's your why? And, I, and I'd done this like 20 times, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, sure, let me get my book out, you know? It's written <laughs> down here somewhere. And, and, the, and then it, another thing that Kerwin said, he goes, you need personality in what you do because if you're not showing up with a little bit of flair, then you're boring, then nobody's going to, nobody's going to catch you. It doesn't matter how good your content is. If people aren't drawn to you, then you'll be nobody. Yeah. And so I had to take acting classes. I took acting <laughs> oh, really? Classes. Yeah, dude. It was amazing. It was probably the best thing I could have ever done. Yeah. Yeah. So that was epic. And then um, and then I went and did Simon Sinek's What's Your Why? And, and the other TED Talk. And, and I really had to think deeply about why I show up and do what I do, you know? And I'm passionate about helping people to understand food so that they can better understand managing dietary restrictions, you know? And it's this whole, it's the holistic approach to cooking is what I love the most because it's not just the food. It's not just the recipe. It's not just the best foie gras you can get. Like there's a system in there and it's, it's you know, who's in the home? Do you have help? You know, what's the music that's happening? Are the kids in the background, you know? Like this bring together social community kind of aspect of eating is what what brings joy in our homes and our kitchens, you know. And I had a very interesting conversation with um, my personal assistant the other day, and I said some of the best meals I've ever had have been either at a $10 kicker, like side of the road thing, or they've been at home, and they haven't mm. been overly complicated, you know. And I've worked in and served in some of the finest environments all around the world. You know, and it, and it wasn't until I realized that this sense of nourishment from home and cooking is is where so many of us can become detached. Because mm. if you don't know how to do it, if you don't know how to create homely cooking experiences, like as a foodie, and then all of a sudden you got dietary, it's like, what do you do? Like yeah. your knowledge of cooking was so limited. And then now all of a sudden you're low FODMAP, gluten-free, dairy-free, you are effed, you know? <laughs> you're in a big, you you are really struggling. Yeah. And so that's why I do, you know, that's why I do what I do because me, like I'm always just thinking about these, this process of dietary because it's what I do naturally working as a personal chef. Like I've, I'm get dietary requests always working in large venues, like, you know, where you'll do 300 covers and 20% of them have got dietaries, you know? So it's what I think about. It's what I enjoy thinking about. You know, I don't, I read books, but I read things like, your the australian organic certification requirements you know like <laughs> mate food food is food connects the world right like i've, I've traveled all around the world and it every t- every culture i go visit um it's always the food that connects you you really understand the culture a lot more when you really just eat their their local foods right yeah it is and so and so what are the variables right if we think about what are the what are the inputs that are required in order for us to reproduce it? Because if, if you can be done, it can be done again. You know, mm-hmm. so if, if you can go somewhere and, and have an experience in a restaurant, then there's a process in how they created it and what they did. And it's the same at home. It's the same in villages. It's the same in, 
you know, anywhere. And so what I, what I did is I unpacked that into like, you know, his, his kitchen structure, his like his foundations of cookery, his techniques, his methods of cookery, he's had to deal with stress, he's had to write your list, he's had to go shopping, he's had to save time. And, you know, nobody's having this conversation about food. These All these creators are just like gluten-free gnocchi, sanchoy bao, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, there's nobody that's like just giving feedback and having a conversation about food. And so that was what was important for me is like, I want to create creating a platform where you, we can have a conversation about food and share value and learn from each other so that then when you go into the kitchen, you're, you're better improved. You already improved. You know, the, the, what do they say that the prep doesn't happen? The prep doesn't happen on the day. It happens prior to the event. And so, mm. you know, if we can help you to build systems and awarenesses and structures and stuff around what you do in your kitchen, then you get in, you smash it out and you're out. Like you just become your own personal chef. It's kind of epic, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Mate, I love you. I love your passion for food. It's um, it's like refreshing to listen to. It's awesome. You've yeah. uh, you've been obviously been in a, doing it for a long time then. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm not obviously not eating. I'm not not eating, but like you know, working in the field and um, you know, having a passion for this industry. First thing I did, like ten years old, I used to go into Mingo's Family Diner in uh in Mansfield when I was like ten years old and weigh the steaks and make pizzas and do the dishes and stuff, you know. And then I finished and I started an apprenticeship. But there was definitely a time where I I didn't like it, mm. um, you know, because it's so hard. Like it's stressful. You're away from your family, away from your friends. Don't get weekends. Poor diet. Poor how all these things. And like I struggled with mental health for quite a while there. Um, and uh, and yeah, like when I it's funny. I think sometimes we can mask the troubles in our industry with the job itself. But what I realized is the troubles weren't the industry, the troubles were in my mind. Mm. And I experienced that when I changed industries and went into logistics and supply chain, that the same stuff just followed me, you know? Mm. So it was really important for me to work on myself and continuously work on myself. Um, you know, I've done hundreds, if not thousands of hours of PD work, you know, NLP, strange sensuality and sexuality workshops, personal growth workshops, you know, weekend workshops like I, it's something I really enjoy I really really enjoy the personal growth space and I love understanding it so that I can help people so if you're in your kitchen you're overwhelmed it's like hang on a minute how does this show up for you outside of the kitchen oh it does mm. this one so what do you do about it can we stop can we take a deep breath can we just you know can we reset do we need to do this right now do we need to be doing things as hard as what we make out to be you know <laughs> I'm a shortcut master because I'm kind of lazy, to be honest, a little bit, you know, like in everything I do, I try and figure out how do I can get maximum output, amazing dish, great taste, less effort, you know? Yeah, no, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, I was, I was, when I left school, I was actually going to be a, um, I wanted to be a chef as well. Um, and I, yeah. I, I know did you're a mad foodie. That's right. You are, you are <laughs> a real foodie. I love watching your stuff. Yeah, like I, I do love I do love food, and um, I was going to become a chef, but it was it was what you just said before, where you you lose your weekends and everything else. Like I, I was eighteen years old, they said, "Yep, you're going to work every Friday night, every Saturday night, every Sunday. Your weekends are going to be Monday and Tuesday." And I was just like, I'm not doing that. Yeah. <laughs> so I just thought yeah. I'm just going to enjoy food outside of work, and then just. Um, go work in nine to five and have my weekends. So that's what I decided to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting that, you know, my journey around food, like I just, I, it kept calling me back, you know, and I made great money from it, you know, like at my peak, I was, when I was working on, on yachts as a personal chef, I was between like 150 to 175 grand a week. Yeah. Broke as hell. Yeah. You know? Like still in debt. Yeah. 
Crazy. <laughs> yeah, also, the more you earn, the more you spend, isn't it? Oh man. And like and again, like thanks to the Aureus, like the Aureus challenge review, and like use this as a as a as a shout-out because it was epic because it really helped me to get clear on where my money is going and what my future looks like if I don't if I don't pull those levers, you know? Yep. No, I appreciate that, man. I'm glad you got some value out of it because, um, yeah, it's just, it, it's, it is that highlighting uh, moment where, you know, as humans, we use the means that we've got available. It's that whole Parkinson's law thing. Mm. Um, and then just highlighting on down paper exactly what's going on with your money and how you can actually improve that and, you know, drastically improve the future of your, your wealth position. Yeah. Um, it just, uh, yeah, makes sense. You know, and it's a little bit embarrassing at the start. It's like being caught in public with your bloody towel down or whatever. You know, it is that like showing up to school without your clothes on type feeling when you do it. <laughs> yeah. But once you expose yourself, like then you get to learn. And, you know, like one thing that I've learned about personal growth is when you go through this process of shedding, it's hard at the start and it's hard in the middle. But the best part is, is you get to grow at the end. And that's why, you know, that's why we do what we do. And, you know, the, the jujitsu as well, like helps with the shit. We help <laughs> Yeah, definitely helps with the uh, the stresses of the world as well. Man. You're not going to be thinking about um, you know your, your daily life when you're trying to defend a rear naked choke or something. Oh, you get, you get <laughs> that's what happens is you get minced. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I'm doing. I'm going for my uh, going for my blue belt this weekend. Oh, are you? Yeah, awesome, so awesome. Try, does your try, absolute? Does your does your school do like a proper um, proper grading ceremony, or is it kind of like you know just what you've been able to achieve up to now? Or uh, well, uh, do you know Absolute MMA with Lockie Giles? Yeah, yep. yeah. So I trained at Absolute. Um, I've we've been to a bunch of different clubs, and I've been doing jits for about four and a half years now, and um, returned home and 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 to go for my final thing. And you know, Absolute MMA is a world class gym. Yeah. You know, like for me, it was extremely challenging because it's a world-class gym. You've, I spent a lot of time trying to fight for survival and missed a lot of the foundational kind of technical stuff. And so I had to go re go back and relearn that. But, you know, Absolute MMA is a world-class gym with world-class competitors and athletes and stuff. And so, you know, their syllabus is is a little bit demanding. You know, they do want to make sure that, that you do know how to do proper escapes. And, you know, not only do you know the syllabus, they're, all our syllabus is on submeta now. So, Lockie has the instructionals on Submeta and then you go through the testing and complete it. Mm. You have to show up to a grading and practice it. But then through the process, like, you know, they want to know that you're rolling well and, you know, you might have a great half guard technique, but actually putting it into the role and making it useful and work for you. Like, you know, that's the process of grading. And, you know, I failed three gradings. I failed my second stripe. I failed my, um, my, my blue belt because I wasn't, you know, Jiu-Jitsu doesn't lie to you. That's what I yeah. love about the sport is if you're not good enough, like the, the sport will tell you you're not good enough and it doesn't lie. And that's why the quit rate I think is so high because it's so demanding. It's so challenging. It's really hard on your body. And if you're not, you can't, you can't bluff your way to your next belt, you know? Yeah. I don't, I, I don't actually understand the mindset as well when people just try to get the next belt as quick as possible, because all it does is put some more of a target on your back anyway and no one's going to be impressed that you've got a purple belt and you get subbed by a white belt. You know what I mean? Like, hundred percent. I don't understand what, like, the mindset of why you'd want to rush it. Because if you, as soon as you go to a competition, you're just going to come last. Um, you got if you got if you, as soon as you get your blue belt, all the white belts want to smash you. 
Um, and as soon as you get your purple belt, everyone wants to smash you. So like, yeah, why rush totally. it? I don't oh, dude, totally. And Daniel Almeida from um from Gold Coast BJJ, like he held me back because you know I'm I'm just shy of 100 kilos. Like I'm 95 to 97 kilos, and he, and you know both of their coaches and Dylan, you know they said, mate, if you go to blue at your weight, you'll get fucked. And he's right. Yeah. And he's right. And, you know, and I was like my technique 12 months ago and my, my strategy, it was poor. Yep. And, you know, I roll with the bigger guys and I'm glad that they held me back because it saved my ass. Cause I was like, going to be all cocky and go and compete. And I would have got rinsed. rinsed <laughs> yeah. It's a, it is a big difference between white belt and blue belt competition. I, it's I, a big I, difference. Yeah. I, I noticed that the, like I, the, the, the very, I did pretty well in my very first blue belt competition. Um, I, I trained real hard for it to prepare for it. Um, but yeah, the competition is definitely a step up. So yeah. Yeah. I'm going to compete hopefully end of, end of the year. I've just got a few more notches on my health goals to go. Yeah. Nice. And, um, and then I'll then I'll get in there. Love that, mate. Mate, so um, been a real awesome chat. Like I've I've learned I've learned so much about um about food this whole session as well. So I know the start of it, we we kind of got into like the technical side of it, but I was just really interested in what you what you do. Yeah, um, cool. Yeah, great. It's been a great chat. Yeah, mate. So mate, if someone wants to get in touch with you um to learn more about what you do or learn a bit more about your programs and things like that, um, how can they get in touch with you? Uh, the best thing you can do is join um, Cook the Better Food Bureau Cooking for Dietary Restrictions Facebook group. Uh, and so in there, we'll, you know, we house all of our sort of great value and, you know, you can follow us on our socials and stuff. But if you join the group where, you know, once a month we host a challenge, five-day challenge, very similar to what you guys do. So you can help to show you how to, you know, save 20 hours a month, save a bunch of money on Uber Eats, create amazing food and do it in a, in a plan in a way that's like easy for you, repeatable and, and a bunch of fun. So yeah, if you want more, join the Facebook group, Cooking for Dietary Restrictions. Um, but I'll, uh, I'll also provide you the link. Uh, that I've got a little link in bio. So you can download our cookbook, join the group. You know, there's a bit about what we do, follow our channels and stuff. But yeah, join the groups. The best way to, uh, it's the best way to move forward fast. Awesome, mate. I'll put the links in the uh, show notes. And um, yeah, for anyone that does want to, reach out to Adam about, um, you know, anything to do with this, please uh, feel free to reach out to him because uh, I think you're going to get a ton of value out of it. So, uh, mate, really appreciate your time and thank you so much for jumping on. So good. Yeah, have an, enjoy the rest of your day, mate. Thank you. No worries, mate. Chat soon. See ya. Bye.